Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Binance Podcast. My name is Weijo. I'm the host for this show. In my daytime job, I'm the chief financial officer for Binance. For those who do not know, Binance is a blockchain company and operates one of the biggest cryptocurrency exchanges in the world. We also are helping to build a bigger blockchain ecosystem with other key initiatives and investments, including Binance Labs, the Blockchain Charity Foundation, Binance Info Academy, as well as Trust Wallet and Travel by Bit. For me, I joined Binance from the traditional financial world, where I served as the chief financial officer for several Chinese and American companies. Two of which were listed on Nasdaq and the New York Stock Exchange. I started off my career in investment banking with Goldman Sachs. From my personal background, I was born in China, grew up in the U.S., and did university at Harvard. After graduation, I pretty much moved around Asia and the U.S. between Hong Kong, Beijing, L.A., and Singapore. Since I've joined Binance, I basically have witnessed a lot more people who are becoming more and more interested in blockchain and cryptocurrency. And that interest comes not just from simply buying Bitcoin or trading, but from more a deeper interest. So what I want to do with this show is to spend time talking to specialists, entrepreneurs, scholars, influencers, basically leading people from a variety of industries. One of the first guests I talked to is Helen Hot. She came from a social development and charity background. I will also be spending time with people from politics, entertainment, gaming, advertising, just a variety of background, and talking about blockchain technology. Hopefully, through these conversations, we can share insights on how blockchain is changing not just these different industries, but also in changing the world. Here's a quick disclaimer. All opinions expressed by our host and our guests on this podcast are merely their own opinions. They do not imply any endorsements or opinions of their companies. You should not take these opinions as specific investment advice, as you will be solely responsible for your own investment. Hey everybody, and welcome back to the Binance Podcast. And then、uh, I want to reintroduce、uh, Helen Hai to everybody. Hi, Helen. Hi, everyone. Yeah, so I'll give a little bit of background about Helen my,、uh, here, and then I think I want to spend a little bit of time to understand her background because Helen, you know, comes with a plethora of experience doing、uh, development work around the world.、Uh, she's a renowned、uh, UN Google ambassador. Her background is very, very interesting because I think. You started off in actuarial management. I don't even know what that means. So, so I would love to hear about sort of your life story a little bit in terms of what you did before you started running around, traveling the world, you know,、um, doing development work, and then even before finance, and then the blockchain charity foundation. I think before that, let's understand of you a little bit about, about yourself personally. Hi, Wei. Hi, everyone.、Uh, my name is Helen Hai. Uh, I actually grew up in China in the city called Changchun, which is a thirtieth city in China <laughs> in northeast.、Uh-huh. And I would say my childhood before、uh, and also my upbringings before thirty is a very typical Chinese generation,、mm-hmm. which was born in the seventies.、Mm-hmm. Uh, my purpose before thirty was very simple: to be a good daughter.、Uh-huh. And then coming from where I came from, being a good daughter, the definition is very simple:、uh, you study well, you go to a big company, and then you climb the corporate ladder. I did exactly、uh, so, of well, of that. And then from Changchun, where you went to school in China, and then I, well, I left China at age of seventeen. I went to England for for undergraduate. Uh, for my A level、mm. and undergraduate. Undergraduate, okay. Yes. So I studied and worked in London for twelve years. I went to Cass Business School.、Uh-huh. I studied actuarial science as my degree. What is that?、Uh, actually, it's probably one of the most boring jobs in the world. But actually, in the financial world, it earns a very good salary.、Uh-huh. When you、uh, buy insurance, you clearly pay a premium, right?、Mm-hmm. So basically, we are the person who calculate the premium you need to pay. And also, as for the insurance company, because when you buy the insurance, you didn't actually get a product immediately. Not like you buying a TV; you are just putting your money, but you are buying the insurance for the future. So, how much insurance company need to keep on their balance sheet? You know, as the financial reserve, that's a very complicated calculation, and they need a qualified actuary to calculate that. So, it's a very specific field of math. Ah,、uh, very much so. So, you're very good with numbers. 
Uh, I think uh, as Chinese, uh, I'm pretty good at math. And then must be really good when you when you got there to the UK then, right? Uh, I think I'm I'm alright. I would say. And what did you do after university? After university, I went to work in the in city of London. Uh -huh. Actually, I worked for the second largest insurance broker, Aon, mm -hmm. and then I moved to uh, Jardine Lloyd Thompson, which is the largest insurance broker in the UK. Mm -hmm. And then I was the youngest partner, actually, in a uh, female partner in the firm before the age of thirty. And after that, at age of twenty nine, I was uh, being selected by Zurich Financial Services mm -hmm. as their chief actuary for the China operation. Oh, wow. So I went back to China as the chief actuary, as an expat. And then uh, when I came back to China, uh, clearly I, I like to continue my also education while I'm still working. Uh -huh. So I did a, a part-time executive MBA. It's a joint course between mm -hmm. INSEAD and Tsinghua University. Mm -hmm. As all the executive uh, course from INSEAD, they are very famous for leadership development. Mm -hmm. So during my leadership development at INSEAD, I've been assigned a personal coach. And in my first session of coaching, my coach flight from Switzerland to coach my personal leadership style. And he asked me a question to me. He said, Helen, we're going to spend a year together. So tell me, what do you want to get out of this coaching how, session? How old were you then? I was uh, uh, 30. And then I thought about the question and I said, I want true happiness. Mm -hmm. And he lo looked at me, he said, Helen, what do you mean true happiness? I said, you know, I think I've been behaving exactly like what my parents expected me to do. Uh -huh. I did everything, I ticked all the boxes they want me to do. <laughs> and I think my parents are very happy. Uh -huh. And all the people around me look at me thinking, Helen, you are reasonable, successful. And you're young. Yeah, and then while I'm in the room alone, I ask myself, am I truly happy? Uh -huh. The answer is no. So this is the thing I ask my coach. I want to have that kind of intrinsic happiness I need to feel myself. Mm -hmm. And this is something I really want to get out of the coaching session. And then my coach told me something. My coach said, Helen, in order to achieve the happiness you want, you need four pillars in life. You need the past, you need future, you need the achievement, you also need purpose. If you are not entirely happy yourself, there must be something missing. Of those four pillars. Of those four pillars. Mm -hmm. And then how to discover that? You need to have a deep internal journey, a genuine journey yourself, and then to really go through that. And actually, I went through that journey together with my coach. Wow. And then I realized, actually, truly missing piece for me is the purpose part. But then how to find the purpose part? I still need to fulfill the gap. So uh, after that, I was still struggling, you know, like how to find that purpose. And then I asked myself, if I stay in financial sector in 10, ten years later, what would I be? Clearly, I should aim for the role being the CEO of for Greater China. Mm -hmm. And then, but I asked myself, would I be truly happy even though I get that mm -hmm. in the next 10 years? And the answer is, I, I won't be happy. Mm -hmm. So that's why I realized I need to make a change. So after that, I went back to work in the headquarter in Zurich for a year. And that year actually gave me a lot of confidence because uh, going to a brand new city mm -hmm. and also uh, with less than a year, I also established a, a very good position in the head office and also established a, a group of friends in this new city. So I realized actually, I, I think I can be put in any big city in the world. You know, I have got the skill to re-establish myself. Uh, so after that year, I had a conversation with my mentor, which is the CEO of Zurich, group CEO of Zurich at the time, Martin San. I shared my struggle of finding this purpose with him. Still today, I really appreciate of him. He said, Helen, in that case, why don't you take a career break? Mm -hmm. Go to explore whatever you want to do. You, you won't have regret in life. So I took his uh, advice, I took a career break. And then accidentally, I went to Ethiopia and actually to set up a shoe factory. Oh, what factory? Shoe factory, making ladies' shoes to export. So this is actually, it's a little bit funny story. What was your position at Zurich then? I was the chief actuary for, for Asia. And then I went back to uh, Zurich. Zurich, actually uh, working as a director in the investment okay. unit, mm -hmm. you know, doing international acquisition. So for very, yeah. very easy, very good lifestyle. Swiss, yeah. Swiss banker, you know, like good life. Yeah. And Zurich is a great it's place. A beautiful to, city. Yeah. And then you went from there to opening up a shoe factory in Ethiopia. Yeah. Because actually at that time, this is how I think somehow my personal journey 
connected. It's a black swan moment for myself. But uh -huh. later on, I realized actually uh -huh. I was it is my journey actually started across with the Africa's journey mm -hmm. for their economic transformation. Uh -huh. uh, why I said uh, I opened this shoe factory, but the question is actually why on the earth is in Ethiopia? The story actually started in March 2011 when the late Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Meles, had a meeting with Professor Lin, uh, Lin Yifu, the chief economist of the World Bank. Mm -hmm. He's the first uh, chief economist at the World Bank from developing country. Mm -hmm. It's because Asia's economic transformation. So when the Prime Minister met Professor Lin, he asked Justin's advice in terms of Africa's economic transformation and job creation. And then Justin told him three things. Number one, he said, job creation, it is the key for poverty reduction. And secondly, the fundamental secret for Asia's economic transformation is because in the 60s and 80s, during the second industrial revolution, the countries like Japan, Southeast Asia, uh, including China, they were able to capture that golden opportunity during job relocation. They were able to create millions of jobs for the bottom of the pyramid mm -hmm. through industrialization. And that is gem start of Asia's uh, economic, economic miracle because it's a common consensus in the 60s. Africa country has a much better chance for economic transformation due to natural resources. Asia is a hopeless continent. The result is opposite because this is different development paths that have been taken. And then he said, now if I'm talking about in the coming 30 years, what's the big economic driver? And then he said, you know, after 30 years, golden manufacturing in China, China is in the process of relocating jobs. But this round of relocation is far more complicated with the last two rounds. Mm -hmm. Because in the 60s, when Japan was relocating to Southeast Asia, Japan only relocated 9.7 million jobs. And in the 80s, when Korea was relocating jobs, from Korea to China, they only relocate 2.3 million jobs. This round, have a guess, how much jobs is in the process of leaving China? 100 million. 85 million. So close to 100 v million. Very close, because roughly 10% of the population will be engaged in manufacturing. China is a nation of 1.3 billion population, so 130 million people engage in manufacturing. Out of those 130 million, 85 are labor intensive. So uh, where would those jobs to go? This mm. is the big question. Southeast Asia don't have enough population to absorb all those jobs. Vietnam, Cambodia, they just purely don't have enough population. And Justin told the prime minister the rate of the salary increase in Vietnam in the past of five years has already higher than China. That's exactly because this relocation. And he said, if actually a significant proportion of those 85 million jobs could go to Africa, this would really change the landscape mm -hmm. post-Second World War for Africa for a global development. So at that point, the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, which has been studying years to struggling on Africa's economic transformation, he understood the idea immediately. And he said, how? Tell me how. Now I believe in you. He said, how? Mm -hmm. So the last remedy Professor Lin gave to the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, he said, in order to achieve this, you need a quick, successful examples to bring inspiration, leadership, confidence, and experience to your country and to the continent. Needs a case study. Exactly, because he said he became the chief economist at World Bank at two, year 2009, but you know like he has been met so many difficult challenges at theoretical level with his senior colleagues at the World Bank to pushing this whole idea. That's why he said the best way is just to be on the ground, be an entrepreneur, make it happen just to do demonstrate, it. just, just, just do, do it. Mm -hmm. And then the prime minister actually believed in him. How did you get involved? Uh, this is where the story started. Yeah. And then the, uh, the the prime minister believed in him. Six months later, he went to China, invited a group of investors. Oh. And then including one of the largest shoemakers in China called Hua Jian. Mm -hmm. And at that time, actually, I was I know the chairman of Hua Jian. And then actually, he invited me to travel with him on that trip to Ethiopia, you know, on this first official visit. And then during the trip, uh, I, uh, actually, he made a decision of investment, and he actually asked me become his vice president of the company to uh, in charge of Huazian's overseas operation. And starting actually, the first thing is to set up the operations in so Ethiopia. They had manufacturers. This is a Chinese shoe manufacturer. One of the the largest Chinese shoe manufacturer. Who did they, who did they make the shoes for? 
for like uh, in, uh, they make the shoes globally for British brand like uh, Clarks mm -hmm. and Tommy Hill Flyers Coach. Uh, all uh, all those international brands so, so all, all over the world. A lot of the international brands go to them to make their shoes. Exactly, they're and the largest shoemaker. Uh, largest largest shoe manufacturer in China, and then they appointed you as their VP of international with their first international project in Ethiopia. Exactly, and then uh, one of the thing actually because the reason I accept that role, I want to say this is how my personal journey actually connected with Ethiopia uh -huh. Africa's journey. The, during my first trip, that, that first trip into uh, Africa, actually, at that time we didn't make the decision to invest, even with the company. We went on a rural trip, and then we saw some children that are suffering from hunger. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, like on behalf of the company of the Huajin, we actually wrote a check of mm -hmm. 100,000 US dollars. Oh, wow. We gave it to the minister. This we is said. 2011? 2011. Okay. We gave it to the minister. We said, please take this money to buy some food for those hung children who are suffering from hunger on the street. You know what happened? The minister looked at the check, and he looked at it for a minute, and he returned the check back to us. He said, Helen, we don't want fish from you. We want you to teach us how to catch the fish. This is something still today I remember mm -hmm. that. During our visit, we stayed in a hotel called Sheridan Hotel in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia. Yep. That is the only five-star hotel, you know, at that time. As you know, Sheraton Hotel, global standard, it is a Sheraton, very nice five-star hotel, big garden full of roses. So uh, after dinner, one day I was digesting food. Digesting also what I've seen, you know, in this very poor country. Uh, and then suddenly I hear some music, which lead me to the back of the hotel, uh -huh. which there's a bar called the Office Bar. And in that bar, I looked around. When I looked around, I didn't see any local Africans enjoying the food and the drink in the bar. They all foreigners, all, all Western people, you know, like... Uh, any Chinese people? We are the only group at that time. So mostly Western, Europeans, Americans. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Which remind myself of a personal story 30 mm -hmm. years back. I was born in 1978. The GDP per capita in the year I was born in China is only 154 US dollars, which is less than one third of the sub-Saharan African countries. So actually, China was very poor at that time. And then when I was seven years old, uh, my father wanted to give me a treat. So he took me to the capital of uh, China, Beijing. Mm -hmm. At that time, there's only one five-star hotel in the early 80s in, in, in Beijing, mm -hmm. called Beijing Hotel. Mm -hmm. So my father took me to the reception, mm -hmm. and then he asked, the receptionist, how much is it per night? Mm -hmm. That was early 80s, and then the reception told my father 100 US dollars. Mm -hmm. My father immediately said, that is too expensive, we cannot afford it. So he's taking me away, that little young girl from that beautiful lobby of Beijing Hotel in the early 80s. At that moment, I thought, that is that beautiful word is a word that does not belong awesome. to me. And that is a word will never belong to me. And then my life changed dramatically later on. To be honest, I don't think it's because how good I am, not at all. It's because China finds the right path of development. I am just a beneficiary of Asia's economic transformation. I'm just one typical example. There's you know millions of us being benefited from this Asia's miracle. So the moment when I was in that Sheraton Hotel, what went through to my mind is outside the big gate of Sheraton, there must be a lot of young girls thinking exactly like me 30 years back. In their mind, inside the big gate of Sheraton full of roses, it's a world that does not belong to them. It's a world that will never belong to them. Unless their country finds the right path of development, their life will be different. So that actually is the moment I realized my purpose. My purpose actually is from a beneficiary of economic transformation to a contributor to a new economic transformation in another place, bringing the knowledge what I've known. So that's why I decided to take that challenge, even though I've never set up a shoe factory. A tremendous amount of challenge. Yes. So it took us less than three months from decide to investment to actual production from Ethiopia to the US market. Three months. Three months. In the following six months, we doubled the export revenue in the Ethiopia in the shoe sector. 
by the end of year one, of the entire country, the entire country, you double the export with six months, three months from that moment at the Sheraton Hotel. Yeah, you decided to invest. You decided to take on this role. Yeah, three months after that, we started, started production, production to export. To export six months from the start of the export, you basically doubled the entire Countries. shoe manufacturing's growth. Volume of the country for the country of Ethiopia. That's correct. By wow. the end of year one, we recruited two thousand local workers. By the end of year two, we recruited four thousand local workers. So that is. And, the, and then you were based in Ethiopia for two years. For two years, solid. And you know, to make this whole thing happen. Where is the factory? Is it outside of Addis Ababa? Or? It's it's about an hour's drive. You okay. know, mm -hmm. uh, from the capital. So so this is. It's a year industrial park. This is way different from living in Zurich. Very very different. How big is Ethiopia? Like how big? Uh, 80, they have 80, 85, 80 million 85 million. So so just for for go Google Ethiopia. It's a very rich historical country in East Central sub sub Saharan Africa. Very critical country, I think, with a long history as well. So, that's correct. Yeah. Because of that success, that's actually that's exactly what I did. It's a live example of Professor. Lin and actually the Prime Minister of Ethiopia's dream become so reality. Within, within three years, three to two six years. to one year to two years, the, you, you basically you're employing 4,000 people. That's correct. And then you probably made up the, all of, you did all of the shoe manufacturing out of Ethiopia. Yeah, and then uh, we, actually we are quite lucky. In year 2012, during World Economic Forum Africa chapter, it happened in Addis Ababa, our story was immediately picked up by CNN. Uh -huh. So actually, CNN did the exclusive interview, and then the following month, uh, I had a, a, a whole page interview from Financial Times. Mm -hmm. The entire world started to know, and then this actually made a big news in the World Bank. Uh -huh. I was being invited in the. A spring meeting at World Bank in 2012, mm -hmm. you know, like to invite to share my story to all the finance ministers. Because traditionally, uh, in, in the development theories, in order for economic transformation to get into global value chain, you need to follow World Bank's uh, doing business report to fulfill all those enablers. So basically, I demonstrate under the current infrastructure, all those situations, Africa is ready to get into global value chain to start it, you know, job creation and economic transformation. And then, so in year 2013, two years after this, the late Prime Minister of Ethiopia passed away, and the new Prime Minister took on his place. And then in his first official visit, to China, which is July 2013, he invited me to travel together with wow. him, you know, on the plane. And uh, he asked me sit sit next to him, and he said to me, he said, Helen, I really appreciate you as a country because you set up the a successful example for industrialization. But for the real industrialization, it's not just one factory. We need hundreds and thousands factories for that. Can you please help me to do that? I said yes. So after that trip, together with the prime minister, I left the shoe factory in July 2013. I become the first female Asian uh, advisor to the prime minister of Ethiopia to advise him on industrialization strategy and investment promotion. My first task actually to promote industrial park. Industrial park actually is not a new concept to mm -hmm. Africa, but the point is, there has no successful examples one. So uh, Ethiopia, they also have an industrial park called uh, Bole Lamin. They have 22 factory units. Only eight of them are built, nobody in it. 14 of them are still on the plan. But then with less than three months, I leased all the, fa all the factory units, 22 of them, to international manufacturers from China, Turkey, Bangladesh, India, all over the world. So the promotion was not just toward Chinese manufacturing. No, international. International. So With less than three months, I leased out all the factory units. You what know the. What, what kind of fact? What kind of what kind of products were you made? Were you made? Uh, they make garments, shoes, all those kind of labor intensive. Labor intensive products, but you're to able export. To, but you're able to attract the manufacturers from all over the world to come to Ethiopia to this industrial park. Yeah. To basically bring growth. Exactly. And the people ask me, how can you do it with less than three, three months? months? The answer is very simple. Success brings success. I brought the investor in. I showed them the 4,000 workers I created. Most importantly, being an actuary, 
I was able to explain to them the profit loss the account and works. the numbers works. Basically, under the current infrastructure, because people are saying, oh, the logistic in Africa is so poor, it won't make money. But I was be able to show them, you know, all those numbers behind it. It works. So that's why those business people, they just immediately signed the lease. And then because that's success, in the same year, in December 2013, because the success for, of this phase one of the uh, industrial park, we convinced the World Bank to give 200 million zero interest free loan first time in their history to Ethiopia to build the second phase of the this industrial, in, park. industrial park. So this actually is really from one factory now to actually industrial parks ideas already. And then in 2014, I'm being invited by the president of Rwanda, Paul Kigami, and then he invited me to do the same thing in Rwanda. Mm -hmm. As people might know, Rwanda is a small landlocked country. So I went there, so I decided to do uh, garment manufacturing. So I'm taking cottons from Burundi, textiles from Uganda, making garments to export to the U.S. market. With less than six months, we recruited about 1,000 local workers. So through industrialization, we demonstrate actually Rwanda can also become a land-connected country from landlocked countries through industrialization and also you know, achieve the goal of job creation, export generation. And then uh, in 2015, I'm being invited by the president of Senegal mm -hmm. and then to help them to build the first industrial park in the capital, Dakar. And then uh, the phase one also being a success. And then in 2018, the government has already working on the phase two uh, already. And then also in 2015, I was being appointed by the United Nations uh, Industrial Development Organization, UNIDO, to be their goodwill ambassador to promote the whole industrialization concept in Africa. in Africa as a whole. In Africa. And also I set up an NGO called what? Made in Africa Initiative. When was this? When, when were you appointed? 2015. So from 2011, four years yes. from that hotel in the Sheraton and Addis Ababa, four years. Yes. You've brought multiple industrial parks. Yes. So and manufacturing jobs to Africa. Yes, for me, I'm really glad to, to witness and be part of the change because I still remember before 2011, industrial policy is a very much forbidden word in Africa, in the global development. And then the f I still remember the f first few years, you know, in the global development forums, which I've been invited, people are still arguing why Africa need industrialization, people. But then a few years down the line, you know, like in 2018, no countries doubting it. People are all talking f about it, it how to do it. It changed. How? It, how? And then I also, in 2015, working together with UNIDO, first time in United Nations Sustainable Development Agenda, we put industrialization goal nine in the global development agenda. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. pushing it, you know, people don't even believe into a UN high-level development agenda. So this whole journey, my experience is really being on the ground, starting from a successful example and snowballing the effect and pushing it at global level on the high level of the development agenda. Mm -hmm. I would say that my journey from 2011 to 2018 is to bring Asia's economic transformations model to support Africa on their economic yeah, transformation. I think that's really, really important because there's a lot of misconception about Chinese capital and Asian capital in Africa. And there's a lot of negative feedback, I think. I'll, I'll touch on this point for quickly sure. uh, before we jumped on sort of the next phase of, sure. of what you're doing. Is basically there's there's a perception, I think, in the general Western media or just world media that Asian money is going into Africa for exploitation, mm, mm. Which, which is historical thing about minerals, mines, and all that stuff. Yeah. But what you've done is very different. We're not bringing, like, what you've done is basically open up a new chapter for yeah. the development model for Africa, right? And it doesn't matter what else is going on, but what you're doing is basically you're bringing actual needs of capital being deployed with labor being used, right? I mean, at a very, at a very high level. Uh, I think you're right. I think, first of all, I would say African leaders, they have a choice today. 
in the past, before Asia's economic transformation, they don't have a choice. They have to listen to the American development model or the British uh, development or the French development model. They don't have a choice. But today, they have a choice. I did not pick Ethiopia. We are being picked by the Ethiopian leader. So today, I want to say African leaders have their own choice to find a way to actually do, do good things for their interests. This is number one. And then if you ask me what is China's interest in this chapter, in my personal opinion, I give you some my personal big view. Mm -hmm. I don't think China is a big ground strategy towards Africa, but it has to be win-win. And actually, at different kind of phases, it actually has different kind of chapters. The first chapter started in the 70s. China was able to get into United Nations as a member because African countries. So even though China is very poor at that time, China called African, we are poor brothers. So China went to Africa already at that time in the 70s to build Tanzania Railway because at that time it's very much aid-based partnership. And it started to evolve. Because in the 80s, China started its own economic transformation. China needs a lot of natural resources. So in the 80s, you are seeing a lot of Chinese companies going to Africa buying natural resources. So it's moved from aid-based to actually natural resource-based partnership and started to evolve again in the 90s. Because China, the economic transformation, China built a very strong civil engineering uh, building infrastructure capability. So. And Africa country at that time, they realized in order for their economic transformation, need they need ba you basic need, infrastructure. You, and China offers the best competitive price. Mm -hmm. and, and that's why you are seeing from the 90s in the last 20 years, most of the Chinese companies, you know, like going to Africa building infrastructures. So this is a mutual interest. So it's moved from the chapter of natural resource base to an infrastructure base. Mm -hmm. And this is started to evolve again. Why? Because by building the infrastructure, China actually lend a lot of money to African countries. China also realized without the real economic transformation, only the infrastructure, Africa I'm, can never repay I'm those money, my, back. My money back. Right, and African countries also realize once I ha after I have the infrastructure, I need economic activity. How to generate economic activity? This is why in 2015, in the China-Africa partnership, President Xi committed 60 billion US dollars to Africa in the coming three years. And then he said 10 projects. The top four, in my opinion, are the most important and also the authors of the projects. He said, number one, industrialization for Africa. Number two, modern agriculture development for Africa. Number three, finance support. Number four, infrastructure. So you can see infrastructure has already moved, becoming, together with finance, becoming enablers. Mm -hmm. So the top two actually are the paths for economic transformation, which are modern agriculture development and the industrialization. Mm -hmm. So I would say this is the new chapter. And I would say the work we did from 2011 to 2015, also demonstrate, you know, like this model and also becoming, you know, like a high level collaboration, one of the concrete pillars for the high level, this this new mm -hmm. chapter's yep. collaboration. But I would say this is a, a choice of mutual agreement. It's not just from one side of China. It is some of African leaders have their own choice. And if also you ask me even from an even bigger picture, what is my view of Africa in the coming 30 years? I don't think all the countries will have the same economic transformation at the same time. Asia didn't do it that mm -hmm. way either. Japan is the first, Asia full tiger followed, China really driving it to a peak. But then I think in this round, you know, like Africa, for Africa's economic transformation, some leaders, they will make their decisions, mm -hmm. you know, what kind of development path they need to take. And then this will determine what will happen to them in the next 20, 30 years. It's amazing. So we're going to jump in a little bit to Blockchain Charity Foundation, to BCF. Yeah. How did that happen? So, you know, I told you my, my personal goal has never been changed, mm -hmm. which actually is to becoming a contributor to the bottom billions economic transformation. And the model, the tool I used actually is in the past eight years is using the second industrial revolution. And in 2015, I was actually being selected by the World Economic Forum as a young global leader. Mm -hmm. So I was one of the people very early stage exposed to the fourth industrial revolution idea. So the question actually I, I've been asking myself uh, from 2015, 16 is, every generation have every generation's duty. 
Now we're in the year of the fourth industrial revolution. How we can use the technologies in the fourth industrial revolution also to support the bottom billions on their e economic transformation. And then actually in 2017, I, I started quite intensively on AI, artificial, artificial intelligence. But to be honest, I didn't find any angle who would actually be coming a economic transformation mm -hmm. you know, to help uh, the bottom billion to jumpstart. I mean, on the contrary, I see that's actually the quicker that comes, actually is even going to shorter the window for Africa's industrialization I, I, window. I, I tend to agree with yes. that. Yes. So, but there's still a window, I, I, you mm -hmm. know, based on my studies about we're talking about maybe another five to 10 years window for they can still. So I realized this, the model I've been using, the industrialization model, there's only five to 10 years window. But after that, what can help Africa to do? That's why I, I think need to look something different. So actually that's why I've started looking at this a blockchain. I was invited by World Economic Forum uh, three years in a row, including 2018, to, to do some talks uh, at Davos. And so while I was there last year, I went to all the sessions on blockchain and crypto. So what I've learned about uh, blockchain and crypto, this block blockchain technology is going to be one of the major technology in the next 20, 30 years to shape actually our future. But then we are currently at a very early stage of the technology. It's very much like internet in the early 90s. I, right now it's still the stage technology looking for applications. But then what kind of applications we need, it can actually go into, it really need industry shapers. And then when we talk about industry shapers, there's some even bigger problems, you, you know, I've been also thinking because if I'm looking at the third industrial revolution, which has happened in the last 20 years, mm -hmm. you know, based on internet, we're celebrating the technological advancement. But at the same time, if I were looking even bigger at globally, 1% of the global population is started to holding 90% of the glo global wealth. The world, even, the world has become more unevenly distributed. In terms that's of correct. And if the world continue to do this way, if in the fourth industrial revolution, if the entrepreneur continue doing this, I don't think the world will become a better place in mm -hmm. the next 30 years. And this is not just for the sake of the 90% population. And I think that we're talking about much bigger security issue for global development. Correct. So that's why I realized in this round, entrepreneurs need to do something differently. And when we say differently, it's not just at the face value giving some money to the poor people saying, I support you. I think it's very important because I met a lot of very good people, you know, based in Silicon Valley, entrepreneurs, but they never left really in Silicon Valley. They only using the technology, developing for the people like themselves to make their life better. They didn't brought the technology to the bottom billion at day one. So this well, is what they said they did. They said they did, but, but the reality didn't work reality like that. Did. Personally, I know CZ actually for years. So that's one of the things after Davos, you know, with those questions in mind, in March, I had actually a lunch with CZ and we talk about those things. That's just after he's been on the front page of Forbes magazine. Clearly, financially, he achieved things people cannot imagine, but also he's thinking about some, some bigger things. It's the same things. I mentioned earlier on purpose. What is real Binance purpose? And one of the things came out of our discussion is actually the purpose of a company need also need to move from success to significant. Mm -hmm. After that lunch, he said, Helen, why don't we use blockchain to do social good at day one? That's why he decided to set up this charity foundation and he asked me to become the head of this foundation because we're sharing exactly the same passion. At that time, I didn't immediately say yes to his proposal to heading up the foundation. Uh -huh. I said to CZ, I said, CZ, this is what you and I think, but we should hear from the real users, the real beneficiaries. Mm -hmm. I want you to take you to Africa, which <laughs> I've never been to. Uh -huh. And then I said, let's go there. Uh, and then I want you to see and I want you to hear. We went to Togo first and then Uganda later. We met the both president. And one thing actually, Today, I still remember very, very clearly. We met the president of Uganda. He's a 74 years old man. He was in the jungles, you know, 30 years back and get, 
get his power, you know, like that's his journey. And he's clearly he's not the most technological advanced leader in the world at all. So in the conversation, when we talk about, you know, this crypto and blockchain, he asked the very basic things, questions. He asked us, tell us, what is your opinion of money? What is money? Mm -hmm. And tell me what is fiat? What is crypto? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, after we answer those questions, he was silent for two minutes. And then he said, you know what? Cece and Helen, I think Africa, Uganda, we should not be followers anymore in this false industrial revolution. We want entrepreneurs like you to come to our country on day one to work with us, to develop technologies, to help our economic transformation. Mm -hmm. We don't want to be followers anymore. That's exactly the word he said. And that's something is really, really powerful for CZ and me because we are hearing that powerful voice from the leader of Africa. It's exactly we realize they have a choice today. They can follow the traditional and development model Oh, they can pick entrepreneurs they believe in. They can pick a technology they believe. But the ultimate goal, because they know today they have a choice to find something to benefit mm -hmm. themselves. And then we are just there, you know, being a facilitator to becoming their dreams to come true. So this is something I really admire CZ. After the meeting, CZ said, Helen, I want to set up an exchange in Uganda. Because the best way to bring the technology to the continent is to setting up an operation. You can talk about training, but the real training comes from the real operation, hiring local people. This is the best way to bring the knowledge to here. If people don't do it on the ground, they will never understand the technology. Engineers will just, never learn. Just like a shoe factory. Exactly. Mm -hmm. After that, I said, CZ, I accept your offer. I will head up this new charity foundation. Mm -hmm. So that's actually how, where I am today, you know, heading up the Binance Blockchain Charity Foundation, use blockchain for social good. Mm -hmm. Great, I love I love the stories that you're telling. And, and I think one of the things that we're doing as a charity, it's very easy, right? You basically seek donation and you look for distribution of that donation. But what's really unique about BCF has done recently is actually bringing at least one of the most important things I think when people think about charities is transparency, right? And, and I think um, leveraging on the blockchain, the public ledger to basically document that to the, um, that every dollar or every Bitcoin, every BNB received actually gets used by the end recipient. And one of the projects that, that, that we're piloting right now is actually the, the, the free lunch program. And I think that that's really, really interesting. If you're on Twitter, please follow BCF. And then also there's a very beautiful video, the Jolly Mercy Learning Center, about Binance actually bringing the donations and then um, delivering it um, through this lunch program. Can you tell, tell us a little bit about that? And that's actually in Uganda, right? Yeah. So first of all, I think the charity, our mandate is not just for the sake of just uh, for charity. I think, as we said, we want to actually use blockchain technology to help the local economic transformation. But we also recognize we're only at a very early stage. What exactly technology can do, we only see a very small piece of the picture. A lot of the, the applications has not been developed. So we started with something very simple, which is to making charity transparent. Why? Because as we all know, the, the famous word leaking basket has been existed in charity even a lot of financial project you know even though for public project in africa because of the cor local corruption etc issues so this is something i think something we know for the blockchain technology the beauty of the technology the transparency it putting the discipline into this that's why we're doing this we're building this transparent system to making financial transaction transparent which actually nobody can abuse you know like the, the, the money from the beginning to the end. Mm -hmm. But the other thing is even more deeper layer than this. If we are looking at the global population, which there's 7.6 billion people, currently the people who are actually using crypto probably just the small proportion of the middle class, the middle layer. But if we are looking at this, this bigger 7.6 billion people, the bottom billion, they're actually being excluded for the existing financial infrastructure not just crypto but just financial services financial at all mm -hmm. personally i don't think 
crypto will replace fiat entirely? No. But I think crypto should become a very good complementary to fiat. Mm -hmm. The first time when I read Satoshi's white paper, what actually I read from the social perspective, when he talking about decentralized, I actually thinking about more decentralized to the bottom billion. So I think actually blockchain should be a very powerful tool, particular crypto, you know, to solve to the problem of financial inclusion for enable, the bottom billion. enable finance. Yeah. As a, to in crypto as a as a form, base Bitcoin is a basic one to bring financial inclusion. Exactly, and currently, if you are looking at the charity, uh, that even the development, the way actually the transfer happened is. Let, let's give you an example. Yeah. If I am a poor girl in Africa and you are successful businessman sitting in Singapore, you know, uh, and then you want to donate money to me. You, there's no direct infrastructure for you to do that. You have to give your money to a third party. And what happened with third party? They gave my information to you to exchange your money. But then what happened between the third party to me? There's no there's no transparency of that at all. To solve financial inclusion, they need basic infrastructure. What is basic infrastructure? The end beneficiary, the bottom billion, they need to have the basic financial instrument, which is in a way a, a crypto account, which is mirror, since they don't have a bank account, they need to have a crypto account. So through actually our donation process, we were able to create everybody, not only the kids, the parents, and all the whole supply chain of that food, you know, the supplying the food, all those SMEs, we were empowering them actually with a crypto wallet. So this gives them ID, a new identity. So once they have a, a wallet, this is the basic infrastructure for future, you know, value transfer. Because I truly believe the beauty of blockchain is to enable value transfer. But if there's the bottom billion, they don't even have a, a wallet. How can you talk about transfer, transfer value right? to them? So we are actually through so, the project building the basic layer so of 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 infrastructure for crypto. So let me understand. So you're actually your team is mm -hmm. actually going to Africa, going to Uganda, going to the local schools and basically helping them to set up crypto wallets. Exactly. And therefore allowing for the transfer to be direct end to end, right? Yes. So transparent. So the trans completely transparent and what's even deeper than that is that in addition to the recipient the recipient's entire ecosystem, for example, the suppliers of the lunches, that whole ecosystem. When they hire workers. you We help them to basically set up crypto wallets as well. Exactly. So, so you're driving crypto adoption, or you're driving at the very, very fundamental level. Basically, with that crypto wallet, then they are, quote unquote, financially included not necessarily in the fiat world, but actually in the in the in the cryptocurrency world, they become part of that ecosystem. Then. Totally, and then because this is a crypto wallet belongs to them, as we all know, uh, remittances is a huge issue mm -hmm. in Africa. They have to pay twenty five percent to the bank if they need to, and then probably many many, many middlemen charges yes. them many just for a dollar end to end. 40%, 30% yeah. And yeah. a lot of them probably have to travel, you know, 10 miles away to go to the nearest bank in order to get that money and thinking about all the costs involved in the middle. But now with this crypto wallet, actually their relatives can send money to them if they want to. Mm -hmm. So this is really to giving them a very basic financial instrument. It's up to them to use. And most important, they realize... Do you, do you every, help them to set up the wallet? We help them to set up the wallet. We work with the schools and, actually to educate yeah, them. And also Binance, we launched a exchange in Uganda October last year that is enabling the exchange of the fiat currency in and out of the cryptocurrency, right? So you, you can teach them to take the cryptocurrency they receive if they want to, to transfer it or exchange it into fiat. There's an exchange there uh, live and trading that they can use. Totally, and also one thing you know, one of the kids in this, uh, the, the as the beneficiary said something, also touched my heart. You know, I don't know some of you probably seen the live pictures from the kids. You know, when they received the food, that 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 happiness smell. Something they also said is they said, now there's no corruption, because 
in the past, the, the money supposed to buy food actually de- becoming the houses, maybe for some corrupted officials in the middle, etc., or maybe becoming the swimming pool of some expat, you know, or the business class ticket, etc. Now nobody can abuse that money. The money you actually they deserve in this process, nobody can abuse. So actually in our charity project, I ask everybody become policemen to monitor this process. People ask, how are you able to ensure the money going to it? I would say, if you know blockchain, you can check yourself. Everything is on the chain. Nobody actually can abuse this system anymore. We don't even need auditors because everything is transparent. And then this is, I feel, is a very powerful way. Technology is fighting for corruption. Because people are talking about corruption in and the developing countries for centuries, mm-hmm. but no even conference won't solve it. But this is something <laughs> the technology is helping them it's, because it's inherent it, in there. It's, yeah, th- there's a discipline you have because everything is so transparent. Mm-hmm. So this is something I felt, you know. And then the most important thing, as you said earlier, we're teaching the locals. Now they know nobody can abuse their power. They own something. They can actually use the money they deserve. Mm-hmm. That's that's great. It's a really good story. Yeah. So how do we how do how how do our listeners how do we get involved? What do we do? We want to work with the whole entirely industry, you know, to push this uh, 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 blockchain for social good. Because this is something, as I said, we need to do it for our generation and also for our future generation. We want the world to become a better place. Mm. So please write to us. We want to collaborate with all of you. If you have any ideas or any project, please write to us. And the last thing I want to uh, share with you is, you know, in the past uh, six uh, months, we're also really glad we've received the global support because last September, when we established the foundation, we were actually working with uh, the United Nations first time during UN General Assembly in September in New York. We host a roundtable discussion. We brought head of states, entrepreneurs, and also a beneficiary talking mm-hmm. about how we can use blockchain to solve financial inclusion. And the following month, October last year, we uh, t- working together with ANCAT. ANCAT hosted the, the uh, United Nations first blockchain for sustainable development forum. This should be a market movement. The thing you, you quoted earlier on, uh, let us move together from vision to action, dreams to reality. Even though we're at the early stage of this movement, but Nelson Mandela says something, it's, it's always seems impossible until it's done. And I believe, you know, like we are jointing hand together, we can make a difference. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thank you, Wei. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Helen, for joining us. And to our audience, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoy this show. If you like this show, please uh, share this episode on Twitter, Facebook, Telegram, WhatsApp, WeChat, or any other social media platform. And please don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. And see you next time.